What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Purpose of Money podcast. I'm your host, Aquania Escarne, and today I am joined by a magnificent superstar. Her name is Ariana Paraje. And if I got that wrong, please correct me, honey. Um, but Ariana is an entrepreneur, investor, and founder with over 18 years of experience in business. She has started, operated, and existed and created more than three SMB businesses, and one of them as early as age 21. Her primary expertise is centered around recruiting, training, and growing an enterprise of sales teams, and in turn, producing many satisfied clients. And I brought her on the show today because I want to know her success story, how she made businesses that she was later able to sell and even create the best life for her and her family and use the proceeds of her sale to relocate to areas where she likes and loves. She has raised $48 million in venture capital funding for her tech startup. And she's also the president and co-founder of her family foundation. So let's talk about that too, because I love people who create foundations in honor of their family. That is the type of legacy we do on the Purpose of Money podcast. And without further ado, Ariana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm so embarrassed. I worked really hard on this last name in the beginning while we no, were practicing. No, you're fine. And then butchered it in the intro. But honey, you have such an amazing story. You have now a tech startup with a $150 million valuation. So before we get into all of that, because I can't wait to talk about it, I want to first figure out who are you and what was money like for you when you were growing up? Oh man. So there, there was no money growing up <laughs> to answer your question. My parents were immigrants. I'm the first generation. I was the anchor baby. Um, they came here for a better life. And um, I was the first in my family to be born in the Washington DC area, not too far from where you're located um, in Northern Virginia. And um, yeah, I mean, growing up there, there really wasn't much to go by. My parents had to come here as political refugees, um, they were escaping war from Afghanistan and my entire family got displaced. So, you know, I have relatives that are in Europe. Some got visas to the U.S. We came to the U.S. My son's, uh, my, not my son, my, fa my father's youngest brother um, came to the U.S. He got settled. We lived in his apartment for a while. Uh, we were on section, we were living in section eight housing for the first probably four years of my life. Um, there was a period of time when I was about seven. I'll never forget this. Um, we went to the grocery store and my mom hands me what looked like kind of monopoly money. And she's like, I need you to go through the line and pay for this. And I'm like seven at the time. I don't understand what's going on. And I go to pay. And then I look back at my mom and I can see she's like crying a little bit. And I, and I didn't understand at the time what was going on, but I'm like, why is she crying just because I'm paying for something? Of course, later on, when I got a little bit older, I realized we were using food stamps and my, my mom and my dad, they're not the type of people that like handouts. They are very hardworking people. And so that moment was one of, one of many pivotal moments that I had growing up of like, I, I've got to figure this out. Uh, I've got to make a lot of money because I never want to see my mom cry like that ever again. Wow. That, that is a moving money story and one I haven't had on the show yet. So thank you for your honesty and transparency. And 
And just keeping it real, and you are not the first. Uh, I am Panamanian and Brooklyn <laughs> mix. My dad's from Panama and my mom is from Brooklyn. And my dad's family immigrated here, um, different circumstances. His father, father, grandfather used to work on a canal and then sent everyone over later when he could send for each of his kids. And so my dad basically was born in Panama, but then moved to New York. Um, while he was a young child, like slightly before middle school. And um, they all had to adjust, right? Like it's just an adjustment and that pressure to do better because you can, right? Your parents sacrificed for you to be here. And now it's on your shoulders to go above and beyond whatever they could accomplish because you have the education, the language, the citizenship, all the things that lead to um, a, a success path, right? Or you have all the puzzle pieces, it's up to you to put them together. So let's talk about how Ariana, um, the seven-year-old who witnessed parents adjusting and and the business owner, and I want to say mogul you've become, like what happened? What even sparked your interest in becoming an entrepreneur, especially at such a young age? I, I 21, I was probably... Um, I did have my money together, but I wasn't thinking about starting a business. So what sparked that inspiration? So again, I think because of my circumstances, I fell into entrepreneurship more out of necessity, right? So I remember being like in second grade, third grade and coming home with like wads of cash in my backpack, my mom finding it like, what are you doing? (laughs) Selling cookies. I was selling whatever I could, whether it was like playing cards, you know, this, that, like I would, I would just sell, sell, sell. Um, when I was 18 years old, I got into real estate. Um, and at that time in my life, there was at that point in the market, you know, real estate was at the height of its market. Um, you know, it's cyclical. And at that time I could see the opportunity of being able to work commission, um, and making a big salary, not salary, but commission, um, without having to take on student debt. And around that time, my dad got sick. He had got diagnosed with cancer. And by the time I was 19, he had passed away. And unfortunately my parents did not have good life insurance set up. And when he passed away, I was 19 years old. I was, all I thought was, holy shit, I need to figure this out because my mom, you know, she worked at CVS, like she didn't have a, 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 a savings plan. She had nothing. And um, so I got into real estate and I, I saw the big opportunity there. And when I first got into this commission position, it taught me how to manage my finances. It taught me how to essentially run a business because I was responsible for everything that I brought in every month, right? Like if I didn't hit X amount of sales, X amount of closings, I wasn't going to be able to feed myself. So it taught me how to manage money. So that was kind of like the initial uh, kind of, I guess, opening to the entrepreneurial world is being a hundred percent commission, being a 1099 that gave me the practice. Um, from there, you know, when I was younger, it was, it was tough too, because being a young woman and starting a company at 21 years old, like you have a lot of insecurities, especially, um, you know, a, a, a minority woman, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, and I didn't go to an Ivy league school. Um, I had a lot of insecurities and I used to try to put my hair back in a bun and look older, uh, to feel, you know, fit in with my clients. And then shortly after, I'd say about six, eight months, 
I realized I had this unique gift that I was younger than everybody else. And I was super ambitious and I'd go knock on doors to get clients. And sooner or later, I would just get clients because they felt bad for me. They're like, oh, look at this little kid who has all this energy. Let me, let me throw them a deal and see where it goes. And, and then I, I realized, I'm like, I have a, an unfair advantage here. I'm the youngin that everybody wants to help and mentor. So as long as I go in with this like open, like vulnerability of like, please send me some business. I'm, I'm a young kid. I'm, I'm working really hard. People will give you a shot eventually. Not mm -hmm. everybody, but mm -hmm. some a, a lot of people will admire that, and they'll say, you know, good for you, kid. You know, I love it. And yeah. then that support, and I love how you took what some people would have considered a disadvantage, right? Because they think, oh, if they if they don't know, I haven't been in business for ten years, and I don't have this many, you know things that I've done or accomplished, they may not want to work with me. You were like, no, I'm young. I'm enthusiastic and I have all the energy. Let me just hit them with that and see where it goes. So being responsible. Another thing you said that's really interesting because as a financial coach, I work with a lot of different income levels and job types. Some people who are commission-based find it really difficult to manage their income but you seem to have mastered it or found a way to master it. Do you recall any of the tips or tools that you use to help <laughs> you when you didn't have a set income, you literally didn't close, didn't win, didn't make money. How did you manage that on a day to day, especially if you were trying to help your mom? So here's the thing about what I think differentiates the successful entrepreneurs with the unsuccessful entrepreneurs. If you don't have a manage, if you don't know how to manage your personal finances, you'll never be able to manage your business correctly. And what I mean by that is like, for example, so I, you mentioned this and I'll mention it again too. I've had three companies, <clears throat> three exits. The first two companies were bootstrapped. <clears throat> the third company, excuse me, we raised a uh, $48 million at $150 million valuation. And whether it's a small little mom and pop shop or big company, the number one key is managing your PL and, and having the discipline to manage your PL. You know, I see so many entrepreneurs that will go out and they'll be killing it and they'll finally get to a post revenue position where they're making, you know, five, 10, 15 million in revenue and they're driving these expensive cars, they're living in these expensive uh, rentals or houses, they're going on these lavish vacations. You have to have that discipline to live beneath your means for mm -hmm. a long time. Okay. Mm. So when, when my husband and I, we had a, a real estate team and we were getting several awards um, from, from the Wall Street Journal, we were the number one Keller Williams team in the entire country by units and volume. Um, by any means from the outside world, we should have been driving Mercedes Benz, X5s. We should have had a really nice, expensive house. We would get these listing appointments for $13 million for the, the, the Hungarian embassy and we'd show up in a beat up Honda. <laughs> and like, what are you doing? You're like, I thought you guys were the number one team in the whole entire country. Why are you driving a beat up Honda? Well, because we were super disciplined. Any money we made, any profit we put back into the business. And that's, that's what sets the entrepreneurs that make it and don't make it apart. It's like, you have to live beneath your means for a very long time. Oh, I love that. You, yeah, until mm. you get to a point where you can buy, like I have a rule now, I don't buy anything unless I buy it cash. Oh, my okay. cars, cash, my, my house, we, I only have a couple hundred thousand left on it, but everything I do, I buy cash. 
That is very interesting. So, you know, Jay-Z said he doesn't buy anything if he can't buy it twice. So that's still being able to be in a financial position where you could literally buy two of something and it doesn't affect you, right? But if you can't buy two of it, then maybe you're not in a position to buy it. And now you're saying you're at the point where if you can't buy it in cash, then it's not the time to make the purchase. So that's a very interesting way to think, especially as someone coming out of the real estate space, selling homes where credit is leveraged so much in real estate. So um, do you still believe in using credit when it suits you or what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Like I, I think that when it makes sense, of course, but when it comes to like, if you're in building mode and you're trying to figure out how to really get your, your bootstrapped company off the ground and you're bootstrapping everything, like you shouldn't be living in an extravagant high rise. You should live in someone's basement, like seriously, (laughs) until you could, until you have, um, enough cash flow. Like the thing is most people live check to check. And then this is actually one of the reasons why my husband and I, through our foundation, we have a financial literacy course that we launched through Miami Dade college last year. Um, and we do it for free. We do it for free. Anyone in Miami Dade is, is available to this uh, financial literacy program. And we did it because we saw that the the middle class is shrinking in this country. And the reason why is because we're in this, everyone's on Instagram comparing their lives to the next person. They're, the whole younger generation, they don't have the discipline that older generations, previous generations have had because they're just living for the moment. They're living for the next vacation. They're living for the next thing that they can post about on Instagram. Um, And and it's sad to see this happening to America. Like you got to have more discipline if you want to be successful. And and people don't understand that. They think, oh, well, if I have the right product, if I get the right funding, if I have this amazing, you know, startup that goes off then I could be living lavishly. It's like, no, no, you need to earn that Mm -hmm. lifestyle. You need to earn it. And it it takes patience. It takes discipline. Mm, That is so good. And I'm so glad you have this course you're offering. And there is, there are studies. It's not just like, you know, Ariana said so, but there are a lot of people who are shrinking. The middle class is shrinking. The evidence and data supports it. And the income is just not there. So you're either... Um, lower income or higher and no in between, but it is still, I know a hundred, you know, a hundred thousand plus people who are income earners, a hundred K or more a year. And they're living paycheck to paycheck, just like someone who makes $30,000 a year. And a lot of times it's exactly what you said. They got the high paying job. So they went to get the fancy car. Then they had to have the house with the fence and the house note is two, three times what it should be. And then you just have this maintenance. You're literally Mm -hmm. getting a paycheck to maintain your lifestyle and you are struggling with credit card debt as well, or some other type of situation, student loans, you know, because you got the six-figure job, but it came with the six-figure student loans. (laughs) So so that's, that is, those are real issues. Um, So I do believe that entrepreneurship has proven time and time again to create millionaires because as an entrepreneur, your income is limitless, you know, sell more widgets, do the digital products, sell more houses, whatever it is for you. But when it comes to raising capital, you know, what, when, first of all, let's talk about when do you know it's time to seek capital for your business? Because I don't think everyone even goes that route. And then once you answer that, can you give us some tips on how to do it? Sure, absolutely. So when it comes to raising capital, I always tell entrepreneurs that 
one, you have to make sure that your company is even worth funding, right? So a lot of folks say, oh, I want to go raise funding and then I'll see their pitch deck. I'm like, but it's not highly scalable. This like, nobody's going to put money into this. Go to, go get an SBA loan, um, you know, bootstrap it. Mm -hmm. Um, so one, you have to identify, is this actually scalable enough? Like, could there actually be a multiple that's interesting enough for an angel investor or for a VC to put money into this? Um, second, do you have an MVP? Do you have a working MVP that, do you have skin in the game? Does it work? Um, I can't stand when I see a pitch deck and I ask them, okay, so, you know, how's your MVP? Can I see a working example of this product? And like, well, it hasn't been built out yet. And I'm like, well, then why the hell are you asking me for money? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like if you can't figure out the hundred K or whatever it costs to build that initial, um, prototype, why are you coming up to me? Cause like that shows me as an entrepreneur, if you can't figure out that piece, how are you going to solve all the other problems? Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. are you going to solve all the other million problems that are going to come your way when you launch this off the ground? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Figuring out the money, the initial money to come up with the MVP. That's, that's not that big of a problem. You got to yeah. figure that part out. You and can, it's the, it's the yeah. basics. Like I it's think that's basics. where you can see as an investor, I've been an angel, angel investor for a couple of companies now. And one of the things I look for is like, how much skin do you have in the game? And the prototype is, is the one thing that I think you should be able to do, even if it's, really, really drawn up well and put together and it's it's not perfect, but it is functional, that's a start. Otherwise, to me, it's still an imagination, right? You're exactly. still dreaming of what this looks like, but you don't know if it really works because you haven't put it together. So I think that's a minimal um, investment, but it could be expensive. Like you said, it could be $100,000 to put together this prototype. It could be 600000 It hey. could be five hundred, whatever the case may be. But if you can't figure that out, if you can't mm-hmm. maybe perhaps find a co-founder CTO that can mm-hmm. build out the, 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 the tech stack for some sweat equity or any, whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. you can't figure that easy part out. You're not going to be able to figure out everything else out. If somebody hands you $10 million, you won't, yeah. you'll blow through that money. Yeah. You raise a good point though, sweat equity. So everyone assumes, you know, when you're building a team for a new venture, it's all about money, right? I have to finance it myself or I have to have cash or I have to have capital. So we talked about like how, no, you could go to people like you or people like me to get cash, but you could also have sweat equity. So for those who are listening and have no idea what that means, that could be the legwork, the admin, the the hustle, the, the grit, the person who's doing the grunt work of getting mm-hmm. something to a place where you can sell it, produce it, or get investors on the table because they may not have the money to put into the deal or not as much money to put into the deal. So I know for my real estate venture, sweat equity sometimes looks like finding the deal. Um, sometimes looks like finding investors, sometimes looks like figuring out the analysis, like do crunching the numbers, making sure that this is even a good deal, um, identifying potential hard money lenders. There's like so many ways to put sweat equity into an opportunity. Um, but I wanted to kind of explain that for anyone who didn't know, but let's go back to how do you raise capital? So let's assume you come to me, I have a viable product. I have a prototype. And now I want to raise money. Where do well, you start? Well, hold on. Wait, you still don't start yet. You have <laughs> oh, your MVP okay. solid. You okay. need at least a couple LOIs, letters of intent, okay. meaning you have potential customers that say, 
you will, they will deliver on this, um, on paying you on this product. Um, you have a solid go-to market strategy, which includes a distribution channel because that's what investors always want to know. It's like, okay, how are your potential customers going to find you? What's your go-to market Mm. strategy? So making sure that you have product market fit. And again, this is, this is, you could all, you could do all of this once you have your, your working MVP. Um, for us, for example, we were trying to solve a problem. So I actually don't have a background in tech, neither does any of my co-founders or my husband, who's also my co-founder. None of us had a, a, a background in tech. We all had a background in real estate. We understood the market and we understood that the problem that we were trying to solve. So when we were setting out to, to develop this again, it wasn't even on purpose. It was more by accident. Um, for those of you that don't know, or aren't familiar with real estate, every single real estate agent, they use what's called an MLS system mm-hmm. to list properties. So we found that matrix inside MLS was very old, outdated. It hadn't been updated since the eighties. And we thought, okay, what if we aggregate all the different data sets from different platforms and put it into one user interface that's very similar to like Zillow, but only Mm -hmm. realtors would access to it. Mm. Um, And so we called CoreLogic and Black Knight, which is the two largest data providers in the country. And we said, we want the data sets for these six counties that we were servicing in the DC metro area. The total is a very expensive number we could not afford. We found out that um, Zillow, which was uh, hosting a hackathon, in this was November of 2015, and basically over 300 teams from all over the country came and they competed. We again, no tech background, but we understood what we were trying to solve. Hired two programmers, um, went there, won the competition, and that gave us gave us an open API to all the public record data in the United States. Wow! See, yes. so you were focused so on counties. Work. You were focused on six <laughs> counties, and you won. And now you have access to the whole United States. <laughs> yeah. So from there, we built out our first MVP with our own money, which was six hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. Then we went around the country showing the idea, the concept to all these different big brands. And Keller Williams and Realogy at the time said, "We want to buy it." We said, "Holy shit! This is bigger than what we had thought." How do we level out the playing field? And the idea was, what if we sell this to every single MLS? That way, every single realtor in the United States would have access to this um, instead of just one particular brokerage. And so that's what we did. We got on planes, trains, and automobiles, pitched this to everyone. And then we said, let's go to every single uh big major broker and major team in the country and show this to them because they would understand the power of this. Just show it to them. And guess what happened? They all wanted it. We raised $6 million just from doing that. Wow. Because we went to our potential customers saying, what do you think of this product? Do you think this would help your daily workflow? And they're like, oh my God, this is revolutionary. Let me write you a check. Mm. And so we raised our six, our first $6 million that way. And then we went on to um, raise another $5 million from a family office based out of Canada. Uh, and then got our Series A from Stripes, which is out of New York. They funded a couple of other big unicorns like Monday.com, and uh, that valuation was at 150 million. This was by, this was all between 2000 end of 2015 and uh, 2018. Okay. And then got acquired by a conglomerate of our MLS customers in October of 2021. Wow. So there's uh, quite a few books out there that talk about building a business to sell right? With that intent that even from the beginning, you're building something you don't intend to keep forever and you want it to be attractive to anyone who might acquire it. Be honest, were you and your husband of that mindset or did you think this would be your baby project forever? So at the beginning, 
we were like, this is going to be forever. This is like, we, we, we didn't have this intention to sell. Um, it was more of like, we just needed the funding in the beginning to get off the ground and to compete. Cause there were companies like CoreLogic that were literally at a conference coming up to us and saying, we're going to put you out of business. Mm-hmm. Gary Keller said, I'm going to build, I'm going to hire out engineers and build this out if you won't sell it to me and I'll, I'll squash you. And so we had this immense pressure of like, okay, what can we do? And the, the idea was how about we just go faster than everybody else. We raise the capital, we hire the engineers, and we just deliver this humanly faster than everybody else and be first to market. And that's what we did. Um, so we didn't have the intent to raise venture capital, but then once we raise venture capital, obviously if a VC is getting involved, they're like, yeah, you better sell this. <laughs> they want to get their money back. <laughs> they want to get their money back. Yeah, exactly. So, so then, then obviously we had to pivot our ideas, but. Wow. So that's interesting too, because there's this concept of the original, right? The person who gets to market first. And then there's also the people who get there second and they maximize everything you did wrong or things that you made a mistake on and they make a better product and then they become the dominating force. But you fortunately didn't have to deal with any of that because you ended up being acquired. Can you tell us a little bit more about what does that not necessarily the numbers, but what does that look like? Like how, as a business owner and a founder, do you decide to sell your baby? Is it, was it a financial decision? Was it a freedom decision? You know, what were some of the thoughts you guys discussed and then eventually settled on? So obviously once we took the VC money, there was no question that we had to set it up to, to sell, to exit. So we already had that in mind. So there wasn't this big conversation of like, okay, it was going to exit. It was more of a question of like, do we want to stay on once it gets acquired? Um, and then what does that look like? What is the, the convey process look like? I think all of us, for the most part, um, all of the co-founders, we kind of were just so burnt out because between November, 2015 and pretty much 2020, um, all of us just worked thousand, like a thousand hours a week. It felt like, and didn't sleep and the stress and all the things that you see in the movies, you're like, that doesn't happen in real life. <laughs> oh, it does, but it does, <laughs> but, it does <laughs> but it does. And I had to get to witness that firsthand. Um, and as a mother, right. As a woman, as a mother, my kids were really young at the time. Um, my second, I had my second child right before our series a, and I gave birth to him within 10 days. I was back at the office. <sighs> So it was intense. It was a very intense time. And, and those years, those really young formative years of my children's life, I don't really remember being there. And I had to live my life like most women would never so that I could live the rest of my life so that most, like most women can't. Right. Oh, I love that. And so it, it was, it was a sacrifice. It was a big sacrifice. There were times where, um, you know, I was traveling between Texas and, you know, the East coast and my husband was on the West coast and my kids were literally being raised by nannies overnight, like two, three nights in a row. And, and I remember being on the road. I remember being in like a shitty three-star hotel with having to pitch our product the next morning and like crying myself to sleep. Like, Oh my God, I miss my kids. Mm-hmm. And it was awful. So back to your question, I'm rambling on, but, um, well, I was burnt out. Everybody was burnt out. We were ready to take a break. I, I believe it. I believe yeah. it. Um, and it's so funny. I, this is a me being vulnerable and transparent on air. <laughs> um, I am addicted to 
documentaries or not even documentaries, but also docu-series. So I don't know if you've ever seen um, the story of Uberstart or Jewel. Um, so Uberstart was like a show on Showtime, I think, for a little bit. So it was a doc, it was a drama docu-series, but it kind of outlined the progression of that company. And then right after I saw that, I watched the documentary on Jewel, which technically is a vaping device. So they modeled themselves as a tech startup, but they were selling, mm -hmm. you know, tobacco in a vape canister that allowed it to be easily, more easily absorbed into the body and enjoyed, right? That was such an interesting story. But in both of those, you you heard these similar stories where they were up all night trying to get things ready for a production. Um, even that that process of launching, like for Jewel, for example, they came up with a marketing plan where they were in clubs and then they had advertisements, which they were allowed to do because they weren't a tobacco company. They were a mm -hmm. tech company. So it was so interesting to see how they were able to market big marketing campaigns in Times Square and magazines that tobacco companies couldn't do because of the lawsuits and the changes in the advertisement of tobacco products. Um, so even seeing the tradition, the changing of how things are done and how you categorize your business and then raise money and then get valued because Jewel had a was a unicorn at one point before it became a device too many kids were using, right? And it became a health issue. And it, you know, so it's just so interesting to me to see the startup world, especially in these multi-million dollar companies that we have come to know as household names, Uber, everybody knows Uber, everybody, you know, got into this jewel vaping situation. Um, but you actually, I think you, what you produce is even more phenomenal because you saw something everyone uses MLS and you saw how you could make it better. So you didn't have what we would call an original, original idea because there the software existed. It was just archaic. You mm -hmm. saw a room for improvement and you, you went for it and then you raced to get out there before everyone else. But then you were smart. You were like, listen, it's time to sell. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you, and, and honestly, in answering that question, you answered one of my other questions about balancing motherhood and business. And it sounds like you sacrificed in the beginning, but you saw the light at the end of the tunnel. And now you get to do more things, like you said, that women cannot. So what is life for Ariana on a day-to-day -day basis? Oh, yeah. I mean, now I'm at a point where I don't miss anything that my kids have at their school. I can take them to school every morning. I could pick them up if I, both my husband and I, my husband runs a publicly traded company now, EXP, but both of us will both walk to the more to the kids school in the morning drop them off pick them up like we're both super active parents and we get to overcompensate for those years that we weren't <laughs> we weren't the we were absentee parents um and so yeah it's just, it's a it's a different lifestyle now that i can i have the flexibility i feel like i've earned you know, because a lot of times with a lot of entrepreneurs, we have this insecurity of like, I've got to put in those 12 hours, 16 hour days. Now I feel like I'm at a point where I've earned my way. Mm -hmm. And so I don't feel guilty if I put in a six hour day or mm -hmm. an eight hour day mm -hmm. the way I used to, right? Before Very I was good. like, oh my gosh, the sun's still out. I better still be on my <laughs> laptop, right? I, I don't, I don't have that, men that mentality anymore. Mm -hmm. I like I that. that mindset anymore. I like that. Um, and I love that you're like, we do what we want to do and we're present. But do you feel like your kids even remember the days you weren't there? So funny enough, 
one time I was talking to my daughter, she's eight now, and, and she, she was talking about something about when we lived in Virginia, you, you guys used to drive me to school every morning, and me and my husband looked at each other, we're like, yeah, yeah, we did. <laughs> But, oh, you, yeah, yeah. but you probably we, didn't, we, we right? We did not. We did not. We, no, we definitely did not. The old pair did that. And so it's just funny. So they don't remember when they're that little. They don't really remember anyways. So. Gotta love it. I love it because yeah. then you're like, yeah, whatever you remember, you know, yeah. <laughs> as long as it's good. No, I love that. No, this has been an awesome conversation. And I know for my mompreneurs who listen to the show, this is going to be inspiring for them because I know a lot of us hustle and grind just to get to a point where the business takes off. And sometimes the goal is six figures, then it's seven figures. Then in your case, it's buy me, get someone to buy this company and take it off my hands. But I, I really love the journey. I mean, you went from being the firstborn, so first generation American um, who built a business at 21 and then built two other businesses. So you clearly know the guidebook and you can execute it. Do you genuinely feel that building a business is pretty much the same? It's just what do you want to do and that's what changes? Or were they three completely different experiences for you? Does that make I sense? I mean, every experience is a different experience, right? Mm -hmm. You learn different things. And um, there's definitely been some businesses that have failed miserably that you'll never see on my LinkedIn <laughs> or, or hear me talk about because <laughs> they were just so awful and embarrassing that I'll never mention it. But you know, every time you try, it's okay. You fail, you get up, you try again, you fail mm -hmm. again, try again. It's, mm -hmm. it's, I'd say there's one key component when you're taking a company from zero to one. And that is, are you solving a problem that's big enough? Are you the person to solve that problem? or you and your team, right? Or mm -hmm. whoever, if you hire an operator. And um, like, yeah, it's just, do you have the passion to see it through when your back's up against the wall and you have those days where you're burnt out and you're like, oh my God, I'm so done with this. Like, do you have that passion to push through, right? Mm -hmm. if, if, you can add, if you can have those three things, you'll have a successful company. Oh, I love it. That is so good. So Ariana, the name of the show is called The Purpose of Money. So I ask all of my guests this question. What is your purpose for money? The purpose of money for me is a tool to be able to do what I want when I want the freedom, the freedom to, to do what I want when I want. I love it. And that's a great answer. Um, before you go, please let listeners know how can they find you? You know, where can they follow you on social drop everything now so we can include it in the show notes? Sure. You can find me on Instagram at Ariana Pareja. That's with one N A R I A N A. Pareja, P-A-R-E-J-A. Um, you could also find um, our family foundation, which is at Pareja Family Foundation on Instagram. I'm also on LinkedIn at Ariana Pareja. And um, yeah, I, I don't bite. If you ever have any questions, <laughs> if you just say, hey, I have this pitch deck and I'm looking to, you know, go through a round of funding and I, you know, could I just get a set of eyes on my pitch deck? I'm more than happy to take a look at it and give you feedback. And if it's a, a good product or a good idea, I'd be more than happy to put you in touch with the right people. I love it. Thank you so much for that offer. You heard it here, guys. It'll be on you if you don't take up the offer for yourself. Thank you so much for being on the show today and just sharing your journey. I think this is going to be a powerhouse episode for so many people. So you guys know what to do. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. And don't forget to share it with anyone who needs to hear it too. Until next time, guys, keep building generational wealth. 
拜拜。